Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 19th, 2018, and this is episode 2185 of the Survival Podcast. <clears throat> and it's Monday, and we are back to our regularly scheduled programming. Last week I kind of took a sabbatical on Monday, and I, th I did a show that I think was really like, a great show. I did the show on growing children and garden. I woke up and I had that dialogue in my head. And I knew if I didn't do it that day, it would never be the same as it could be. So I, I made that call. Uh, this week we will do a standard Monday show, which is listener feedback. Because I skipped one, I've got a bunch of stuff. I'm going to try to move quickly through it so that we can get the show in in about the regular amount of time with more content. Here's what I have today for you. I have a simple preparedness story from a listener. Uh, blockchain was trialed in an election in Sierra Leone, of all places, and what, what that could mean long term. Thoughts on writing a letter of recommendation for an employee. Uh, getting started as a new gardener in a tough climate. When to turn a side hustle into a business entity. Why I don't recommend dwarf fruit trees. Uh, what I feel, <clears throat> I'm sorry, what I feed my fish and why I, I choose to feed them that way. How I calculate net wealth when I'm talking about things like making investment decisions based on your net wealth. What I actually mean by that. Uh, aquaponic systems and shade considerations. Where should you locate your aquaponic systems? And thoughts on the employee handbook that I wrote for my son when he was eight years old. I get a lot of questions about that. I'll, I'll try this once again. And I, I can't recreate it. It's something that I wrote, uh, well, he was eight. He's 29, so 21 years ago. <laughs> Anyway, with that, before I get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. You know, I got a question about net wealth today, and it's probably directly related to this. I always say that about 5% to 10% of your net wealth should be in silver and or gold as a wealth assurance policy. And we'll talk about what that net wealth really means when we get to that segment of the show today. But um, when I'm going to buy gold or silver, I go to jmbullion. I don't go anywhere else. And the reason is simple. Gold and silver have a lot of their value because they are what they are. And what I mean by that is we take some silver, we refine it to a known refined consistency, and we have it in the form of something like, let's say, a U.S. Uh, government silver eagle. And if I get that silver eagle from JM Bullion or I get it from one of the big silver houses like Monex or Atmex, it's the same thing. So why in the hell would I pay more for it? Why would I pay for shipping if I don't have to? If I'm going to buy $300 or more worth of precious metal, why wouldn't I get the discount that I get through my MSB and go with Jam Bullion? And why would I buy from a company that won't give me the direct email contact of their president or CEO when Jam Bullion will? That's who Jam Bullion is to this community. They've been with us for over six years, and you know me. I mean, if a sponsor's not treating people right, they don't get to stick around. Six years, that's a long time to get to stick around. I recommend that you keep about 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold. A little less, a little more, it's up to you. Uh, but I'll tell you what I, what I definitely recommend. If you're going to get some silver and gold to add to your stack, go to jambullion.com when you do it. Next up today, the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead from bulkammo.com. You know, I, I really don't like going to stores. I, I really don't. Sometimes, you know, it can, it can be fun to do a little window shopping or whatever and get out and see some stuff. But overall, 
Guys, you know, I, I put... <laughs> I put last year on my truck, including two long road trips, I put 7,000 miles for the whole year on my truck, and about 2,000 of it was in a single trip. Uh, true story. I don't like to go places because there's people there and they're in my way. I made the mistake on Saturday of going to pick a few things up at a couple different stores. I accomplished almost nothing because there were people there on a Saturday, and there's like the worst of the worst crowds and stuff. And so that applies to everything, including ammo. So when I found that bulk ammo could ship me ammo so fast that if I was like, I'll go out this weekend and pick up some new ammo, and it would already be here before the weekend got here, uh, and they would have great prices, then I was I was sold. So if you need to uh, add to your stack of your ammo, not just your silver and gold, check out J I'm sorry bulkammo.com for that other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. The year is the year 111. Pliny is appointed the governor of Bithynia. This year, Trajan appoints Pliny the Younger as imperial governor of Balanthia and Pontus, a province that is now in northern Turkey. Nothing too out of the ordinary occurred during his term, and that's why it is so important. Pliny had been married three times, but his wives all died and had no kids. In an attempt to make sure someone would remember him after his death, he published his letters in a book called Epistolae. The first nine chapters contain letters to his friends, including historians Tactius and Suetonius, The tenth chapter contains his letters to Trajan and Trajan's responses. My take by David Verne. These letters give modern historians a critical insight into the daily and sometimes tedious administration of an empire. They also give us an insight into Trajan's personality, which is rare. Most historians who wrote about this period were alive during Trajan's reign and chose not to write about him while he was alive. Interesting. Now, here's my lesson <clears throat> on the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom in general as it relates to this. Why might people not have written about the emperor while he was alive? Hmm. Have you ever said something to somebody and you actually meant it as a compliment and they took it as not a compliment? So even if you weren't being critical, they thought you were being critical and got offended or upset or angry? Hmm, what if that person could point at you and tell someone to cut your freaking head off and then that's what they did? Okay, would you want to be writing things about them while they were sitting on that throne with the ability to point a finger and say, cut his head off or stab him or kill him by nicking him to death? You ever heard of Nick? We've talked, we've, we've mentioned that in uh, history said before, nicking it was actually a way that they killed people to torture them at this time, where they made tiny, tiny cuts that slowly bled somebody to death. And that's just one of the many ways that an emperor could choose to end somebody's life at this time. So, maybe our founders were pretty smart when they came up with that whole Bill of Rights thing to ensure freedom of the press. And it didn't take long for things like the Aliens and Seditions Act to put that to the test. We need to be thinking about that when we talk about rights in general. And a little thing I'll throw in here. Last week I did a post on Facebook, especially you homeschoolers. This is a great little project to do with your kids. Do you know the amendment in our Constitution that probably gets talked about the absolute least? And it's not the tenth. That, that one's probably the, the second least discussed one. At least the tenth one gets, uh, the tenth gets uh, criticism so it gets talked about. No, it's the one right before it. The Ninth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which reads, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights should not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. 
It's, it's a, a pretty simple statement, but one that very few people really understand. I, I call it the, the just in case you didn't understand what we meant or didn't, or we didn't say it amendment. Um, I don't want to go further than that because I think it'd be a great thing for this little project to be done with your kids. You can do this whether they're homeschooled or not, but I think it, especially homeschoolers. And that is to discuss this amendment and pick it apart. Like, what does the enumeration in the Constitution mean? What does that mean in, in modern English, right? And so what does this amendment actually say? And therefore, what rights does it protect, not grant? And then why might our government, our government-run schools and the media and people in general, not be so hip on discussing the Ninth Amendment? Just a thought. Made me think of it when we read today's uh, history segment because it really makes a case for kind of that First Amendment thing, doesn't it? Can you imagine how little press there would be about the president of the United States, no matter who he was, if the president of the United States could have somebody killed because they wrote something he didn't like? Hmm. Anyway, with that, before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and remind you guys, if you love the show, you want to support us and the work that we do, the easy way to do that. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and sign up as an MSB member. Then use the discounts over the next year of your membership to get your money back and make a profit. That is a win-win-win. You win because you get to support the programming that you like, and you get your money back if you use the discounts. The providers win because they get something called incremental business. That's business you would not have otherwise. And I win because I make enough money to keep doing this show and provide the content to you. So consider becoming a member today because without members, this show would not be what it is. It wouldn't be here. I couldn't have done this now for almost 10 years without you guys. And thank you to everybody who has ever shared my show or been a member or is a current member of the MSB. All right. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your feedback for me. Remember, the best way to submit content for a show like this, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, put TSPC in the subject line. Tell me your bottom line up front, your question, your point, whatever, in one or two sentences, and then hit the return key a couple times and give me your details, and you'll be most likely to get on the show. First one today comes from Chris from Philly. He says, Jack, I just wanted to share a quick success story from one of your recommended Amazon items. I purchased the Victor Tire Patch Repair Kit you posted back in February. Not even a week later, my indicator on my Jeep was showing low pressure in my back tire. Found out that I'd picked up a nail. Mind you, I've somehow managed to never have a flat or a hole in a tire on any of my cars. Talk about coincidence. It's been a couple days since I patched the tire. It's been holding perfectly. Always love your recommendations, Jack, and thanks for all you do, Chris and Philly. Well, Chris, um, first of all, thank you for letting me know that. I love hearing from those of you who have taken my advice, whether it's product-based advice or organizational advice or whatever, and then it's paid off because that means that I'm doing the right things and I'm helping people. Now, here's the thing about this. So this is a very minor inconvenience if you're prepared for it, and it can be a very dangerous thing if you're not. I've told the story the last time I covered this product, but... There was a time that I had run over a piece of angle iron and I was broke down with a completely flat tire that a plug kit would not have uh, fixed uh, on the Dallas North Tollway at rush hour and had you know vehicles flying by me and what have you and up on one of those little scissor jacks that come with your car and all and it's it's not fun and and the ability you know at least in many situations to immediately affect repair and get to a place of safety. Uh, and then seek a higher level of repair. It's, it's, it's huge. And it's, it's not just something like a, a, a tire plug kit. 
that is a great item, and I'll put a link to my review of it, because if it's not in your car, it belongs in your car with a decent compressor. It really does. But so many of these other things that we talk about, it, what happens is people know they should be prepared, and then something goes wrong and they're not. And you just sit there and go, if I had this $10 thing, I could fix this right now. If I had, you know, a, a few, a, a, you know, 50, 60 gallons of water put up in the closets throughout the house while we're under this water outage for whatever reason, I wouldn't be so concerned about this right now. And it's just so many things like that. When you're told, hey, you, you, you gotta, you gotta get, head to the hospital with a family member. And, well, if I had a bug out bag, just like the same success story we had last year, it would, then everything would be eaten, but now I don't. And I don't have time to do this. So I included this one as much to share Chris's story is to kind of remind you, like, this stuff that we talk about, it actually matters. It actually happens. We're not your doom and gloom survival radio show where it only pays off if the apocalypse comes, which is it doesn't pay off. It's Nobody wants the apocalypse, guys. No, even the people that think they do, they don't. All right, There are people that, oddly enough, seem to think that they do want the apocalypse to occur. Um, it, it, this stuff helps you in your life all the time. And we, we built this show from the very, from day one, I had the slogan that was probably the worst marketing slogan that anybody ever created. I'm supposed to be a master of marketing. But what I've always said is if it's right, it's right. Because it's clunky, it's hard to remember, it's hard to say, but helping you live the life, helping you live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Right? I mean, that is a terrible marketing slogan from a standpoint of it's, it's too long, it's got a comma in it. You should have a comma in a marketing slogan. Just I'm just saying, there shouldn't be a pause. It should be, you know, what is it? Well, the rental car company hurts, we're number one, right? And then Avis like throws the towel and he goes, we try harder. But at least they both kind of three, three, two to four words, no punctuation. But when I put the show together, I realized I had to have an anchor point. So that when somebody said, well, why am I doing this? Well, because it helps you live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, that's why you should be doing this. And guys, it works. Again, I'll have a link to the review I did on the tire plug kit. And uh, just remember, this stuff matters. And if you have a success story, uh, please let me know about it. TSPC in the subject line. So next up, Sierra Leone uh, just did a blockchain-based election, even though it was more of a trial and wasn't 100% done this way. Let me give you a little bit of the article here. It's on TechCrunch. The citizens of Sierra Leone went to the polls on March 7th. But this time something was different. The country recorded votes at 70% of the polling to the blockchain using a technology that is the first of its kind in actual practice. The tech created by Leonardo Gamar of Agora anonymously stored votes in an immutable ledger, thereby offering instant access to the election results. Uh, you read the rest of the article if you want to, because I want to talk about more about what what it would mean if we actually ran elections on a blockchain. Well... If you had a system that required eligibility to vote to be able to use it, and you had a system that created a digital identification that was single and unique, which blockchain technology can do. We, that's why cryptocurrency works. I can send you a Bitcoin, and no one else can counterfeit that Bitcoin. That's that's the whole point. And trust me, with, with billions of dollars available, if it was doable, somebody would have done it. 
So it's not doable with this type of technology to, to create this counterfeiting. So it means the end of voter fraud. It also means 100% audible results by anybody. 100% audible. You can audit it. I can audit it. Somebody else can audit it. That means no more cheating. That means no more rigging primaries, Hillary. And, and I mean, that's why they're not going to do it in this country anytime soon. The first thing that you would get if they talked about doing this is sob stories about old people that don't know how to work it. That'd be the first thing that you'd get. Even though you could make it where you could still go to the polls and use blockchain technology at the polls. You don't have to have like a special blockchain thing at your house to be able to use this technology. It could actually be for the user exactly the same. I think that's how it was in Sierra Leone. So you go to your little polling place and you know you, you get your little screen and you select all your clowns that you want to vote for, but it becomes immediately auditable and immutable. No more rigging primaries. Well, you can rig the primaries because the, the judge said that the Democrats had every right to rig their own primary, by the way. You can look that up if you doubt me. But you would be very transparent in doing so in how you're doing it. But this is what I think the future of blockchain is. Not necessarily elections. It is the ability to be the truth teller. To actually have a record of what happened, when it happened, where it happened, and how it happened where you can't go change it. You can't go make it into something that it isn't. And it's why I think it is the thing that will enable what I've been forecasting for, I guess, four or five years now, virtual nations to actually become a thing. Because if you have a million people united by a common ideal acting as a swarm, and you can say, here's the swarm. This is what it looks like. Here's where it goes. You have a credibility there. It's very difficult to then say that this is not real. There's a lot that I think blockchain is going to do for us. And I also think we are so... Try to figure out what blockchain is going to really mean for the world. We'll be like going back to like 1994 and trying to really understand what the internet was going to do for the world. The internet has done so many things. We don't even think about it's the internet did this. How about wireless home automation? You don't need the internet for that, do you? You, you really don't. Like if I want to have where I can take my smartphone and program it so my fish tank lights come on in the morning at 6 a.m. and they go off at 8 p.m. to give 14 hours of daylight, I, I use my wireless router and my in-home network to do that across my phone. But I don't really need the Internet. I don't need an Internet connection to make that happen because it's a, it's a, a local area network. It's not wide area network technology. And if I want to do it from my buddy's house, then I need the Internet. So how does the Internet create that? How many of you right now have a wireless router in your home? Most of you. Why do you have a wireless router in your home? Because Internet. If we had never developed the Internet, there would be very few home networks, especially wireless home networks today. The entire wireless router world exists because of the Internet. Now, it's not there wasn't wireless technology before the Internet as we know it, but to be able to go out and buy, like the TP-Link Archer 7 that I use, for you know under 200 bucks and have all that power and capability in a home, it's only because there's an Internet. That's, that's one example of something the Internet created. The Internet created a smartphone. 
The smartphone has replaced probably a hundred different items. When's the last time you bought a calculator? That used to be an entire industry. I know there's still some specialized financial calculators and stuff like that out there that some people use for some reason. Um, but in the end, most people don't. But it's even hard to find one now. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, like, you know, they have all those impulse buys at the cash register. There was always, like, a cheap calculator sitting there because you always needed a calculator. You don't need a calculator anymore. Remember your math teacher said you won't have a calculator everywhere you go? Lies. Because you have it. We can, we can test our health. You know, we have now technology that works with a smartphone for under $1,000 that does what some medical scanning equipment used to do that cost, you know, a quarter million dollars. Okay, no internet, no smartphones. You start to look at all these places that have permeated out and created these life-shifting things, and it all comes back to the internet. That's what blockchain technology is going to be. We don't even really know yet where it's going to lead. So keep an eye on it and think about how you can capitalize on it yourself. This next one is actually really a difficult question. It comes from Bryce. Bryce says, in your opinion, what is the best verbiage or catchphrase to use in a letter of recommendation for a senior graduating from high school that has been a dependable farmhand for the past three years? Details. In addition to a lifetime hunting and fishing license, I would like to give my farmhand a reference letter to be used for future job applications and or various high school, college clubs, various college clubs, fraternities, etc. How do I clarify the amount of work ethic as well as the physical and mental stamina it takes to be a reliable farmhand? Thanks. Um, well, I don't know what to tell you to say, and I don't know about catchphrases. I mean, dependable, honest, trustworthy. Um, my, my big thing that would get my attention if I were hiring somebody is the word proactive. That's that's a big thing for me. When I see someone with a, a track record of being proactive, meaning they figure shit out and fix it, and then you don't have to worry about it because they already fixed it before they came to you with it, that that is exciting to me as a potential employer. But I also want to be honest with you about letters of recommendation. A letter of recommendation is like ticking a box. You generally don't read a lot into them when you get one as a potential employer. Uh, maybe more so like college fraternities and stuff like that. I don't know nothing about that world, so I, I don't know if maybe at that level, because you're talking about young people there and what have you, they're not in the real world yet, they're still in college. Um, maybe it holds more weight. I don't know. I don't know that that's how you get into it. I know nothing of fraternities. But when you really need a letter of recommendation is when you lose a job Because if I'm looking at hiring you and you know, you're know you honest so you don't lie about the fact that you lost a job, which is really dumb because I'll find out if I do any kind of background check at all. Um, when I have from your supervisor a letter of recommendation, that tells me that whatever your story is about how it wasn't your fault, you lost jobs probably true. If you can't get me and secure me a letter of recommendation from somebody in your supervisory chain from a job you've lost, I assume you screwed up and they fired you. Another thing that a letter of recommendation really is for is for the person that will read it more than anybody else will ever read it, the person you wrote it about. Because as an employer, if you send me your resume and shit and a letter of recommendation, like of course it says good stuff. I'm serious. But I remember a letter of recommendation that I received when I was really young. I was just starting out in my career. And it was, it was, it was well-earned, but it was glowing. 
I probably read it 50 times. You know why? It told me I was doing the right thing. So realize you're writing it as much for this young man to read as you are for any future employer to read. However, do not be overly um, complimentative. Be honest. Like, give the compliments that are earned. There's also a school of thought that in any letter of recommendation or something like that, that there should be at least one negative thing so that it doesn't look like it's contrived. No. No. I'm not writing a, a, a review. If I'm writing a review of your performance, then the negatives are going in. If I'm recommending you, I'm going to point out the things that you do well. That's what you do in a, in a recommendation because that little tip is given by people that don't really know what the F they're doing and don't know what they're talking about. And they heard somebody say it sometimes, so they say it too. And it can be something that the person looking at it will fixate on. The guy that just takes out a letter of recommendation, blah, 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 gloom, gloom, proactive, blah, okay, yeah, that's good, resume, blah, 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 okay, yeah, I'll interview this guy, right? Could hit that one negative and go, whoa. Especially if I just got rid of somebody that had that same problem and I got a bad taste in my mouth over it. So only the positive, but not overly embellishing the good. And again, my word is proactive if that applies Um, it, it might be well to do because a lot of people that would read farmhand might not understand what a farmhand is or a farmhand does. So maybe two sentences that are not really about the individual but the position. You know, something like you know, being a farmhand on our farm includes activities like boom, 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 and you know, long days and and hard nights and 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 sore muscles or whatever it is, you know. And not knowing next week what you're going to be doing and having to be adaptable. And, you know, Tom Smith has been exceptional at that, blah, 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 like that. But I, I can't write it for you. I, I just don't do that because things are not genuine when you do that. Okay, next up, this comes from Tom. Tom says, without any gardening experience, how could I learn how to grow food in semi-arid west? How difficult is it? Uh, background, I've lived in northeast and suburban consumer homes all of my life, and I'm almost ready to relocate and rent and then find a rural homestead. I love nature and the outdoors, hunting, shooting, camping, etc., and I've always wanted to live where it's rural, but I have no gardening experience. I've only grown grass. Unfortunately, my three choices for relocating are the Cumberland Plateau, Tennessee, which is, I expect, easy to grow food, and the western high desert of Arizona, Or the Rocky Mountain foothills of Colorado. Putting it frankly and humorously, I think I'm a lawn grower, I'm a lawn grower, and I want to move to semi-desert over 2,000 miles away and grow my own food. Am I getting in over my head? Should the ease versus difficulty of gardening in these environments be a major factor in deciding where to move to, given my inexperience? Besides a PDC, which I want to take, can you recommend resources for learning about growing food in the mountains, west, semi-arid environment? Thanks for all your help and info, Tom. Well, Tom, I would not make a decision about where to move solely on my ability to garden. And especially if, if I was going to move into one of those environments, I would be looking at greenhouses uh, and or shade houses, depending on where you're at, and aquaponics as a starting point, because that's going to mitigate a lot of the things. But there's, there's definitely great ways to grow in those climates. Let's talk about Tennessee for a minute. Yeah, you're right. You want it, you're all about zone six primarily, temperate climate, lots of rain, generally good soils, uh, huge uh, agricultural tradition. That would be the easier one. 
And I'm just going to say, Tennessee, man, if you want to find a place with like the highest concentration of TSP enthusiasts, man, check out Tennessee. That's, it really is an incredible place with some incredible people. And guys, I'll be there at uh, Nicole Sauce's uh, workshop in April. Anyway, on to the other climates. So let's look at this a little bit differently than, well, how do I grow in Arizona or how do I grow in, in, in you know, western Colorado? Let's look at how do I grow wherever I am. Because wherever you go, even places that are great, always have challenges. Uh, the places that are considered the easiest, the, the northeastern temperate climates with lots of rain, also have the most abundance of pests because everything grows there, so everything that eats everything that grows is there. So you generally have less pests as you move into some of these more difficult environments. So you have a difficult environment to grow in, but you have less pest pressure. You, you see kind of the, the way things roll that way. So there's a couple of different things I would advise. Number one, the Master Gardener program is not my huge cup of tea because there's a lot of it that gets relied on commercial inputs, even though there's a lot of organic stuff that gets done with that as well. A lot of it is involved with things like growing geraniums and, and ornamentals and stuff like that, which I'm not huge on. But what you have is a great group of people that know the climate and know the plants that grow there And some of them are going to be vegetable gardeners. You're just not going to go to a master gardener type situation. So I would look for like what, what you know what's going on with master gardener in, in that area. Once you decide where you're going, that is. I would also look at what were the techniques that the indigenous peoples used prior to the arrival of white people from Europe to grow their crops there. In Arizona, there's a tremendous agricultural tradition, and some of the things that they did was they grew in below grade. So everybody wants to build a raised bed. Well, if you live in a really wet climate, raised beds make a lot of sense. If you have crappy soil and there, there's nothing, you know, it's rock underneath it, like I have raising things up makes sense because then you have soil to work with. But if you're in a desert climate with lots of wind and, and, and lots of evaporation, then moving into a deep pit and, and, and using fertility down in a pit will actually help reduce those things and make you more effective. And that's just one example. I don't think there's a place in the United States other than the absolute you know, Arctic tundra where you can't do well with a garden, though. Remember, arid is relative. So it, it, it might be very dry in the part of Colorado you're going to, but if you have the ability to irrigate a garden, your garden's not arid. Your garden is irrigated, therefore it is wet. So, I mean, that's you know what you're looking at. And when you look at gardening, you know, we're talking about farming here. We're talking about gardening. You know, something akin to... Uh, an area the size of, of a, a standard size bedroom in a house, or two of those, produces an awful lot of food. That's not much to irrigate and mulch. In the end, irrigation, mulching, wind blocking are your friends in most of these situations. Uh, it's not just the dryness, it's the wind. And determining where and when and how to put in wind breaks that don't overly shade things is uh, a huge thing. I remember... When I lived in Arlington, I had my, my little eight-bed garden. And it's about this time of year we get this wind that's just nuts here. They say well, Chicago's the windy city, man. Chicago's got nothing on Dallas-Fort Worth. Nothing from wind. And I actually looked up the climate records, and that's a true claim, by the way. But I would get these really heavy winds. And what I would do, <clears throat> I would go out where the garden was, and I, I had some like scrap plywood that I built to where you could set up like stands. And it created wind breaks. The little plants were just getting the shit beat out of them. And just by doing that and getting them through that windy time of year, they had plenty of water because it was irrigated. 
right? But being beaten with the wind is a problem. Plus, it dried out the beds faster, requiring more irrigation and making the plants more dependent on irrigation and therefore more shallow-rooted. So, you know, again, wind blocking, solar aspect, mulch, and deep fertility in your soil. If you do those things, you can grow stuff anywhere. But, yeah, you're right. It might be a little easier in Tennessee, and you might just find yourself surrounded by a lot of friendly folks. Uh, check out the Zello group, uh, and you'll find, I think, about half of those people live in Tennessee. And remember, you can find the Zello channel by going to the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, this one comes from Andrew. Andrew says, How do you know when the right time is to turn your side hustle into an actual business entity? I'm doing some metalworking projects, and I'm selling to friends for cash. Right now, the money is not significant. But I'm picking up higher value projects as time goes by. There are tool and material purchases involved for each project. I'd like to buy some larger machinery in the future. How do I know when it makes sense to go pro and take the tax benefits uh, vary the versus the current cash income benefits? Well, the answer to that is, first of all, you're supposed to pay tax on everything. Okay? You know, you should be doing it now. You should be paying tax on it. Just I, I, I said that. I don't know what I meant it, but this is what you're supposed to do. Um, however, when you get to a point where you have enough revenue that not disclosing it is not an option because it's, it's significant and it's going to show up somewhere that that'd be one place where you got to do it. And, but the other thing is like you said, create an entity so that you, most people for that be an S corp or an LLC. I think one thing people don't realize is you can do business as a sole proprietorship. It's not necessarily always the smartest way, but there's not almost there's almost nothing that you can't do as a sole proprietor that you can do as an LLC. Now, where an LLC makes a lot of sense is if you're going to have business accounts, business lines of credits, and things like that, or where there's multiple partners. Multiple partners in LLC makes things a lot more structured, and a lot, you're going to have a sh a partnership operating agreement, and that makes everything clear how things work and what procedure for selling out or buying out another partner is and all of those types of things. So that's where that really makes a lot of sense. But you can, so we were talking about buying expensive machinery. One of the things I find is that people who have not been in business before think, well, if I go out and buy a $5,000 metal lathe, I don't even know if that's a, You know, that's a good number for a metal lathe. I have no idea if there's expensive metal lathes to do whatever, right? But a $5,000 piece of equipment, maybe it's a, a laser CNC machine or something like that, they, then they get to deduct $5,000 from their income. No, no, that's not how that works. That piece of equipment becomes an asset in the business, and that's the same if you're a sole proprietor or a company like an LLC. And what happens is you will have a depreciation schedule for it. It might be a five-year simple depreciation schedule. See, these are things where you need an accountant or a CPA, you know, you need a CPA, and probably not a bad idea to have a tax attorney if you're going to form an entity, at least when you form the entity, to choose the right entity for the right reasons. Um, because some things you can depreciate at what's called an accelerated depreciation, where you take more depreciation up front. Some things you can't. Some things under a certain value you don't have to depreciate, even though they technically should have to. See, all of these things are kind of out there. Um, but the, the day you take your side hustle 
to an above-board business, whether it's as a sole proprietor or if you form a structured entity, is when it becomes your primary source of income. At that point, you absolutely have to because things like getting credit, if you go to buy a car or lease a car or something like that or buy a house, are going to be dependent on income that you, you haven't been reporting and you're living underground with. You see what I'm saying, right? So you have to make this decision. I, I, I you know, legally can't advise you in this at all. Um, but I can kind of point you in the direction toward making that decision for yourself. And to me, as you, as, as the, I mean, the other side of this is, as you move beyond the friends and family world, having an entity to, to, to be the face of the business becomes a lot more valuable. Because Tom buys from you because you're Andrew. But Bill needs something. And unless he knows Tom really, really good, he doesn't care that you're Andrew. He cares that you're, you know, C&L, metal fabrication, or whatever, what have you. So, I mean, that's another reason that you have to look at this, uh, you know, in making that type of a choice. But I think the, the important, more important question for you right now is, what do you want from this? Do you want it to be a legitimate part-time business? Do you want it to be a full-time business? If you want it to be a full-time business, it probably makes sense to move sooner rather than later with setting up structure and, and, and choosing. But like, is it worth doing an LLC? Does it make sense for you? Does it offer you any protection? Uh, is it required in your state maybe to be protected from the state itself? Like, you have to have a conversation with somebody that sets up these entities for a living about what you want and what you're trying to accomplish. Then you make that decision. But if you want this to be a full-time business, I would get the structure, even if you're going to do business as a sole proprietorship, you know, the name of the company, the procedure. And I would say, like, if you want this to have longevity and the potential for growth to where you're going to have employees and things like that, then it really needs to not be about Andrew. Like, that's fine to get started with your friends and family. But if you market yourself, then you're marketing like an artist, And that means when I come in and I need this thing done, I want Andrew to do it. I don't want his employee to I want Andrew to do it. Because it's all about Andrew. If it's about we are, you know, A&O metal fabricators, right? And we do these things really, really well. Well, then I just want it to go to A&O metal fabricators or whatever the hell you call it, Andrew. So... You got to look at what your long-term plans for the business are, because the actual tax consequences between an LLC and a sole proprietorship, if you are a sole proprietor, are there's not much difference. It can have some differences when you're sued, right? It can have some differences with how you have to conduct business with your state and what filing requirements you have. And generally, it means you have to do more. You you might learn the hard way, like. <laughs> So for one time, I had a, a, an employee of mine interviewing potential employees that we were going to hire another employee, and he gave them a project to see if they were any good as a graphic artist, where he gave them, photo gave them photography that I had taken. It was my photograph that I owned the rights to, and it was for a DVD jacket. And she did it upside down and backwards, so obviously she didn't get the job. Well, when we made the DVD... 
and actually went to market with it. Well, we used the same photograph, and 90% of the cover was the photograph, and she claimed we took her property, her intellectual property, and didn't compensate her for it. She wanted $200. And she sued me in small claims court. I'm like, I'm a principal in the company. I'll go down to Denton Courthouse, and I'll slam dunk this this bitch, is how I felt at the time. And I had paper trail. I had everything. There was no way I would have lost this. And uh, Neil said, you should call Jeff, our attorney, and see what he has to say about it. I'm like, eh. So I called Jeff, and he goes, oh, it's Denton County. Bad news for you. I'm like, what? He goes, since you're a company, not an individual, you cannot represent yourself in small claims court. You have to retain an attorney to do so. What? Yeah, and he goes, I, so I sent him everything. He goes, I can go down here, and I can slam dunk this. No problem. Could cost you about $1,000 for me to do it, though. So I give her the 200 And we did. You know, I mean, that's an example of I would have been better. That company I could have, I would not have made the decision over that. But that's an example like these entities are not because the guy on TV told you you should have one or the guy on the infomercial said, we'll tell you how to have an LLC and then you'll have all these tax advantages. Most of the, the, the rules for what you pay tax on if you're doing business as an individual are the same. What's expensable is the same if you're conducting business. It doesn't matter. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. This one comes from Dwayne. Dwayne says, bottom line up front, why don't you recommend dwarf fruit trees? Details. This was on a podcast a few months back, but as I remember, you said you didn't recommend dwarf fruit trees. You mentioned we prefer for someone to get no smaller than semi-dwarf and then just keep up with trimming so it stays a smaller size, if that was what was desired. My question is, why not just get a dwarf fruit tree? I have a somewhat small suburban backyard, and I'm planning on two or three fruit, maybe nut trees in spring, but looking for something that would stay small in size. For example, I was considering a few varieties of dwarf apple or small pawpaw trees. Thanks for all the great content, Dwayne in Maryland. Well, Dwayne, the reason I don't recommend a dwarf tree is because when you have a dwarf tree, you have a smaller root system. Therefore, you have a less resilient tree, and some of the true dwarf trees actually need to be staked, or when they get you know, to full size for them and uh, get weighed down with fruit, they can actually fall over. But that's that's neither here nor there, honestly, on the, the larger overriding component to it. If you prune a semi-dwarf or full-size rootstock tree, you can keep it any size you want. And the way we get trees to fruit is by causing them to spread. So we train them, we shape them in a vase shape. If they're a stone fruit, for instance, but we pull branches out to the side. And that's the signal to the tree that I've canopied out, and therefore it's now okay to stop trying to outgrow my friends and make fruit. So if you ask a French orchardist how to, how to produce fruit from a tree, he'll hold his hands up over his head and say, do you want a tree? And he'll put his arms out to the side and say, or do you want fruit? Okay, so that's that's the structure we're looking for to get maximum production from our trees. Since we can prune a full-size apple, if we wanted to, to be five foot tall, six foot tall, by about five to six foot wide, and we can maintain that just with a pair of pruners. And then we get the resiliency of the larger rootstock Why would we get a wimpy little-ass rootstock that's more susceptible to problems, is not as drought-tolerant, etc., when we can get what we want from that larger rootstock? Also, what I would encourage you to do is look up the life expectancy of trees on dwarf, semi-dwarf, and full-size rootstock. 
And you'll find the larger root stocks have longer life expectancies. So since I'm making an investment in the tree, because that's the way I look at it, I'm buying a tree for $30 today that I know in the future will be worth a lot more than $30 right up until it dies. And when it dies, now it's worth whatever the wood's worth. And most fruit trees, that wood's not like something we're going to cut board timber out of or something, especially if we've maintained it at like a backyard orchard size. So it's maybe some craft wood or firewood. So it's, it's worth nothing now. It's, it's end of life expectancy. The longer I defer the end of life of that item, the greater the return of my investment. So I, I guess my question would be, given this is the fact, why does anybody recommend dwarf rootstock for the backyard orchardist? The reason you, that these rootstocks were developed in the first place was for large operations to be able to maintain smaller trees for picking and things like that. Which makes a lot of sense because it's a lot of work to, let's say, maintain 5,000 trees on an orchard if we have to prune them that aggressively. But for the backyard orchardist that has four or five trees. And then some of the best people in the business recommend this. Jeff Lawton recommends this in his urban permaculture stuff he's done. He's you know, in the backyards where people have done this high-intensity suburban permaculture type stuff. And the other one guy had three full-size apple trees planted a couple feet apart, pruned like columnar apples. Columnar apples just grow like a pole. So he pr pruned them very narrow and maintained them, and they produced very well. But they were full-size rootstock. Now, the other thing you get is you, get, you, you do prune more, So now, if you're in a permaculture situation, what do we do with all of our prunings? They go to the ground, which means we're now creating more organic matter. So, like, the, the, again, the question to me would be, why do people that should know better recommend dwarf fruit trees for backyards? It, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. That's the approach that I come to it with. Uh, next up, this is from Mike Sentex, who's uh, presented at some of my workshops and was very helpful to some of our responders during Hurricane Harvey. And it has to do with um, an item of the day I had last week, which was a bristle-free grill brush by Gwen. And I said that when I did that segment, listen, if you usually skip the product of the day segment, because this could save you your life or the life of someone you love, or at least save them from a very painful, uncomfortable experience and ruining a good day. And what happens with these grill brushes, that they, they make a lot less of them than they used to, but where you have bristles on your brushes, person goes and brushes the grill to clean it off, and a, a, a steel bristle might break off and stick to the grill, and you don't see it. Now you cook your burger or your steak or whatever, and it sticks to it, and you or someone you care about eats it. and goes in your system. It can cause all kinds of trouble. And I, I, I know I never heard of this happening in the 1980s in every single person with a grill. And dare I say, I think grilling was a bigger deal in the 80s than it is today because more people knew how to freaking cook in the 80s. Um, never heard of this. And every, every single grill in a backyard had a steel bristled brush hanging off it. I think they just, the quality went down and this is now a problem. This now happens more frequently at least than it used to. And I talked about a study in an ER where one ER over uh, 18 months had six people that came in presenting with pain, and it ended up they had a piece of steel in their digestive tract somewhere, throat, down in the stomach, in the intestines, what have you. Well, here's what Mike said uh, in a comment about that whole thing. I had heard about this in the past and was kind of skeptical that it was com that common. Then just last month it happened to my stepdad. He went into the hospital with stomach pains, 
The x-ray found he'd ingested a small piece of wire grill brush. Treatment was either surgery, if it snagged on the intestines, or heavy doses of diuretics, and daily physical stomach manipulation by large-handed nurses. He finally passed it. It was four days of hell. I sent one of these to him and the rest of the family. Very serious issue. Thank you for covering it, Jack. The reason I covered that is because I almost said when I put that information out, I know this has happened to someone or someones in this audience. If it happened to you, please let me know. And I didn't. And I was like, I bet you if I just put this out, I'm going to hear from And it was the same day I put it out, Mike uh, made that comment. So thanks for letting us know about that, Mike. And yeah, it's it's a real thing. And um, it's one of those things like the, the number one rule of survival is don't die. Uh, when you have a piece of metal in your system, if it doesn't kill you, it can at least ruin your day. Uh, next up from Josh. Josh says, would you mind announcing a workshop I'm hosting near Houston, Texas? I imagine you might get requests like this often, so all her feelings if you can't do it. But you answer these questions about business and marketing for me before relating to my permaculture design consultancy business. I have since started Texas Edible Landscapes at txedibelandscapes.com and have been granted half an acre of land to create community food forests. Last month was our first workshop, and it was a success. This month is our second, and we will be planting into the swales that were marked at the first workshop as learning, well as learning root divisions, softwood cuttings, and much more. This is not just any workshop. Participants that help establish food forests also get a share in the harvest that is being set up as a community food forest demonstration site. Anyway, if you wouldn't mind, I'd greatly appreciate, and will offer, offer your listeners a discount. These normally sell for $50, but your listener can use coupon code BAF2018 for $20 off. Here's the link, or listeners can just navigate to Texas uh, TXEdibleLandscapes.com slash events. Uh, this is being held in Magnolia, Texas. Thanks, Josh. Josh, I will definitely put links in the show notes. And there you go, folks. It's a community member making something happen. If you're in the Houston, Magnolia area, you might want to consider getting out there and meeting up, not just with Josh, but other like-minded people. These opportunities don't come up every day. Next up, of course, we brought um, this is another Mike. There's a, there's a video out there. It says, Stop Naming Your Kids Michael. Uh, there's too many Mikes in the world. <laughs> It's pretty funny if you want to look it up. I'm sure you can find it. Anyway, another Mike says, uh, here's an idea I had for another pitch for your use of ButcherBox. Of course, a new sponsor we brought on this year. I have really wanted to know how to cook, like really cook for a while now. This year I told myself that I'm going to start learning basic things, try new recipes, and hopefully figure out how to barbecue. I signed up for ButcherBox and an idea hit me. Whatever they send in the box, I don't get a custom box. I will make myself and learn how to cook. The same, they send the same thing twice. I'll try a different way of cooking it. This way I eat good food and force myself to learn how to prepare it. It also, and also free bacon because bacon. Hope this helps Mike. Uh, yeah, I, that's a great idea. I, I actually think when I, when I kind of think about it, We did, it wasn't HelloFresh, but it was one of the programs like HelloFresh, my wife and I did for, I don't know, a few months. And uh, I think ButcherBox is probably a better deal because, you know, you can only put baby arugula in a bowl and throw some vinaigrette on it so many times and call it a salad before you're like, yeah, we, 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 we've done that now. Uh, but it was kind of cool. And it wasn't really that I was learning. It was just like, okay, we're going to make chicken swamara. I would have never made chicken swamara uh, on my own and nan bread and stuff like that. So 
like that was cool, but I, I you know, to me, you give me a piece of meat, and it, it's it's the the building block of whatever we're going to do. And I, I kind of like this approach. And you don't have to be a butcher box customer to do it. What if you did this? What if you just said this week I'm going to go to the the, the the store, and I'm going to go to the meat counter, and I'm going to randomly grab three, four things, whatever. And then I'm going to come home and I'm going to I'm going to figure out how to make something with chicken drumsticks that I've never made before. I'm not just going to roll them in batter and deep fry them. I'm not just going to throw them on the grill and barbecue and whatever. I'm going to make something different. And you just started, you know, looking up recipes for chicken drumsticks. You might find some really cool things. You know, maybe you got a pork loin. Well, there's some really cool things you can do with a pork loin other than just roast it. Really cool. And I think that's a great idea. And I think it's You know, I'll mention again, we, we, David and I have started this new cooking show called Bill Tong for Breakfast. Episode one's up. I'm sure he'll be working on episode two this week to get that up. Audio sucks. We had the gain on that mic way too high, and it's like kind of blowing out too much amperage. Um, but, you know, we're learning. I actually have a buddy of mine named Hatch, not this weekend, but next weekend coming into town. Uh, with some more audio gear I'm buying from him, and he's going to do kind of some tutorials with us and, and get us better at it. But what we want to accomplish with Bill Tom for breakfast, one, have fun. And when we get together and cook awesome food and have fun anyway, so why not share it? I mean, the other thing is we usually have a few adult beverages, and I'll come up with something really awesome when we can't remember how I did it, so leave us a video. We can figure out how I did it. Um, but we also want to encourage people to be adventurous, to be fearless, to try things. I think that's a, that's a huge part of learning how to cook. People want to know, like, how did you learn how to cook? Well, I learned how to cook because when I was a kid, uh, my parents would not touch, and my dad worked, so he just wasn't home. Uh, my mom would not touch fish, game, anything. So if I wanted to eat it, I had to cook it. My Ukrainian grandmother, when we moved to Pennsylvania, she'd cook it, but she ruined everything. I mean, that woman would cook a piece of meat until there was nothing left of it. Yeah, it's tender and it falls apart. Thank God for gravy. You put gravy on and watch it suck, uh, like go in like dehydrated meat. Um, so I, I had to learn. But there was also things like, well, why don't we try a stew that's made with squirrel and deer? Well, no one does that. Uh, I think they do, but I would just try it. Then the other thing I think that really got me into cooking was when I first moved here to Texas. You know, I've told kind of the story of my past, and it sounds very successful, and eventually it, it, it was. But for the first couple of years, it sucked. I, I was dead broke when I moved here. I got out of the military. I had a few thousand dollars saved up. Um, I, I came down to Texas. I was on unemployment. My first job, I was making $5.90 an hour uh, and paying, you know, paying my half of the rent for an apartment a friend and I were splitting. And, you know, I ate a lot of ramen noodle and stovetop and stuff like that. And, and, you know, the dollar, I do the dollar menu at Taco Bell, Jack in the Box, and, and McDonald's very well, I hate to admit. Uh, and, and, you know, I do how to maximize how much food you could get out of that. But after a while, it gets like boring and you realize like, okay, well, I can go buy a whole chicken back then for like four bucks. And I can make three meals out of that. Well, I'm going to go do that. And so then it became like a challenge, like, what can I do with what I have? And that led me to figure out all these kind of like cool ways to make food. And I just think today with the internet and all the cooking sh shows that are out and stuff like that, man, I mean, it's so much easier than it was back then because, you, you know, you didn't, you, know, you might go to the bookstore and find a cookbook or something. You didn't just like Google ideas for recipes with chicken thighs or chicken drumsticks or what have you or 
you know, how to make tangine quail. Like, you, you just didn't look that stuff up. So, man, the opportunity that's available today is huge, guys. Take advantage of it because cooking is a life skill, and it's something that has a direct positive impact on your life, and it helps you live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't because it started for me with tough times when there wasn't a lot of money to do a lot of things with. And every time I saved money on food, I could go do something kind of screw-offish. And I was a young, you know, young 20-something at the time, single, so I, I liked going out and screwing off. So if I was able to cook my own meals and get three meals out of a single $4 chicken, I could afford to go out to the bar Friday night, etc., right? So um, it really did help when times were tough. Next question comes from Josh. Josh says, what kind of fish feed do you use in your aquaponics systems? Thank you. Josh, to tell you the truth, and I'm not super proud of it, it just is what it is. I use plain old fish food from the feed store, like from Perina or whoever's at the top aquas when I'm using this. Every time I go and I get floating fish pellets, it's whatever they have. And that's, that's what I use. Um, so I, it's a conventional feed product. So I know I'm supposed to be Mr. Organic and all. And, and if there was an affordable, highly available fish food that was not using certain things I'd prefer not to use, I would buy it. It just isn't here. And it's ridiculously expensive if you can get it. So I think it's demand before the car, you know, demand before the horse there. Car, the cart before the horse thing. There's not enough people doing it to create enough demand for it to, to get it up. But I, I do try to mitigate it. So for instance, I've pretty much decided that my number one fish species that I grow are the various types of sunfish. Blue, uh, bluegills, um, green sunfish, pumpkin seeds, red ear uh, crackers, things like that. All the little things people call sunnies or brim or bluegills or perch, depending on where you live. And that's not a real perch. Shut up. I'm just so tired of that. I know what a real perch is. It's freaking Texas. They call them perch. Get the hell over it. Anyway, um, they'll eat... Just about anything they can eat. Uh, they would eat you if they were big enough. I promise you. I've got some that are so trained to feed now, I stick my hand in the pond, they bite me. It doesn't hurt, but it, it's it's a little like, hey, well, that guy's getting a little size to him there. Um, since they will eat just about anything in the summer, when all the little ponds around here are just full of minnows, I'll go take a big dip net and I'll catch just a cooler full of minnows, bring them home, throw them in one of my tanks, I have tanks where they're breeding as well, but you get that big supplement and that new genetics in in the summer, and I'll just take a big dip net full of minnows and just throw it in the tank. And, you know, there'll be minnows in there for about a week to the last of the last get found out and, and eaten. So that is one way that we supplement. And when they really start breeding heavy in my minnow tank, you know, I'll, I've got bluegills in the tank right next to it. I'll walk over with like a, uh, like a colander like for spraining noodles or whatever for cooking, you know, one that's about 10 inches in diameter, metal one, I keep it out there hanging up, and I'll just move the salvinia, which is an aquatic plant, out of the way and dip net a bunch of minnows. And they go right from that center tank to the tank over here where the bluegills are. And then I push the salvinia back into the net, and I take the salvinia and I go over to the other tank where the tilapia are, and the tilapia and the koi eat the salvinia. So that one tank is growing me minnows and salvinia. And I, I would love to have systems that are big enough and, and sophisticated enough to do all of my feeding that way. I don't. I don't. So since I don't, I fall back on a standard fish feed. And I'm working to use less and less and less of it. And here's a, like a lesson for this. If you are raising pastured chickens, 
And due to cost, availability, whatever, you're feeding conventional feed. So you're doing a chicken tractor, Joel Salton style thing, but you're feeding Purina you know, chicken feed. That chicken that you're raising is still about a hundred times better than an organic chicken from Purdue or what have you. Because it's being raised in a humane way. It's having access to bugs and other things. It's getting exercise. It's being treated well. And if, if you doubt that, all you have to do is take a processed chicken after you've processed it at your house and go get an organic chicken from the Mega Mart and smell them. That's the only thing you got to do to know that like, oh my God, the stink from chickens that are processed in conventional chicken factories is, it's dramatic. It makes you not want to use chicken from anything other than pastured chicken. So when we're doing these things with fish and aquaponic systems and all, it'd be great if we could get a good supplier that had like a non-soy, non-GMO, even if it went organic, uh, fish feed. But it's, it's, it's difficult. I will say that, you know, most of the fish feeds are made with fish meal to make up the protein. And that mitigates this to a great degree because the fish meal is from generally the waste products of, of ocean fish. So that, that is somewhat mitigating of that. Anyway, that's what I feed them. And I'm, you know, other things I'm trying to do, if I can keep the dadgone ants out of the worm beds, you know, if you have a big worm bed full of worms, a handful of worms and drop them in the bluegill tank and it's fun, it's exciting. There's a worm pieces going everywhere. Uh, I buy mealworms for my, my chickens. And while they're getting mealworms, a lot of times I'll throw a handful of mealworms in. So it's not just like I don't want to feed this particular feed. I want a diversity of feed because that's what they would get in the wild. Next up from Adam. Adam says, when you talk about investments and say net wealth, do you include a mortgage? You inspired me to get out of all debt and our mortgage is the only thing left. But if I use that to judge net wealth, I am in the negative. How do you calculate it? Thanks. Adam in Northern California. Okay, Adam. Being from Northern California, I can understand what a mortgage is like. Uh, here's how I look at the net wealth quotient of what you own. What you owe on that property, if we do a classic balance sheet, would be you know assets, liability, capital. And that liability would directly come across what your net wealth actually is. However... The way I do this for making decisions about the allocation of my investments is if I owe money on a property, but I can sell that property for at least that much. Let's say, let's say I had a house with a $200,000 mortgage, and if I sold it tomorrow, I could reasonably expect, after paying all the fees and crap that I have to get rid of the house, to walk away from it with $0 in my pocket, But zero dollars owed. I would be even and I could walk away and it would be reasonable to do in, let's say, a 30-day period of time in my current real estate market. Then I don't see that debt is coming off my net wealth because it's a liquid asset that just doesn't have any equity in it. It's, it's a net – that's almost never going to happen, by the way. You're going to be the negative or the positive. So now let's say that the, the house that I owe $200,000 on – The reasonable expectation, based on a market analysis and what's available in my area and how the market's working without mental masturbation here, we're looking at a legitimate, hardcore, like if we put the house up for sale for this much money, it will be gone in 30 days. It's $250,000 that I would walk away from. 
the, the deal with in my pocket. Now I would say that I have $50,000 worth of net wealth in that property. So that $50,000 would go on to what is my total value because that's liquid. Real property that can be liquidated in 30 to 60 days in my mind is a liquid asset. Let's look at it the other way. If I owe $200,000 on the property and the number of what I can expect to reasonably walk away with in 30 to 60 days that, that nobody would challenge except an idiot, right, um, is $150,000, now I have a negative, actual negative equity of $50,000. So if I look at my house here and say, well, I own about 170 on it, and I can probably get about 250 for it now, then I would have $80,000 to my net wealth in my property. In making my decisions about how I allocate my investments with an understanding that that 80K is in the form of real estate, It's not just the number, it's where is it? X is in real estate, X is in equities, X is in you know, uh, the value of my business, etc. And, and when I'm talking about silver and gold allocation of around 5% being kind of my bottom, then I'm including that number in it. Whether that number is neutral, positive or negative, I'm including that number in it in my recommendation anyway, as to what I personally advise that you do. Next one uh, comes from Ad another Adam. We've got Adams and Mice today coming out of the woodwork. Uh, I'm in the planning stages of building an aquaculture system similar to the indoor one that you have uh, shown recently. Mine will be outdoors. Should I build it in shade, partial, or full sun? I live in southern Oklahoma, and I'm concerned about water getting too hot for the fish. I plan on starting with goldfish, but phasing in catfish after I get operating properly. I plan on start, uh, starting the grow beds with things I use most often, carrots, onions, tomatoes, peppers. Thanks, Adam. Well, Adam, I'll, I'll tell you, if you had complete control over what you're going to do and you have the budget for it, Uh, that system that you're talking about that I did an indoor growth system with was really to overwinter fish. And I'm like, why don't I make it educational? So I did that playlist of about 10 videos to show people, here's how you build an aquaponics system. This is how easy it is. Next week, it's getting moved outside. And it's going to get moved into an area that pretty much gets hit with sun almost all day long. But I'm going to build a pergola over it, and I'm going to put 30% shade cloth on it. In our climate, and your climate and mine are very, very similar with our summers, about 30% shade is about optimum. You then might want to further shade or protect your water tanks. So your battery, let's say you use a, like I'm using a 300-gallon stock tank. That's your battery in the system. Water flows through the entire system, but the place that we want to most control its temperature is where the vast majority of it is at one time, which is in that battery. Because what happens, that water gets pumped. Let's say it's going to ebb and flow beds. The level drops, right? We're discharging the battery. The ebb and flow bed dumps. It fills back up. We're recharging the battery. Dump, 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 back and forth, back and forth. What you'll find is that the temperature of your water will be dramatically consistent through the entire system. In my large-scale system that's built on two 330-gallon IBCs that are in a um, greenhouse, and then the, I have 12 grow beds, uh, various types. Now they're almost all wicking, but at the time they, there was some deep water. Um, in a 50-foot-long aviary, meaning that the furthest 100-gallon deep water bed was about 65 to 70 feet away from the main battery heart of the system. 
And if I went down with my little ray gun and stuck it in there and pointed at it and looked at the water temperature, it would be the same or within one degree. And those were under shade, and the one in the greenhouse, of course, was in a greenhouse getting heated up. That water equalizes because it's circulating, and it's going to. But if we can keep that battery cool, then the rest of the water as it circulates is going to stay cooler. So you can get additional shade, and so if you think about how you can set things up, your battery doesn't necessarily have to be right where your grow beds are. Now, the way I have that set up, where I just have a 4x4 sitting on it and then your grow bed's sitting there, it's very easy to do that way. And it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't configure it where we have the battery in a fully shaded area and our grow bed's out in a sunny area. And that would be optimum. And again, I'm a big fan of putting up some sort of a structure And then you can go to Greenhouse Megastore is the best place I've found so far to buy shade cloth. You can get it custom made in any size or length or what have you. I would say this, about 12 to 16 feet is about as big as I want an individual piece of shade cloth to be that I'm going to have to manipulate. And I would buy two of that size before I buy one that's 50 foot long. Ask me how I know. A 50 foot piece of 40% shade cloth and you're trying to put it on a metal structure is a nightmare. It is an absolute flipping nightmare. So smaller people can get it grommeted, the end seams, what have you. And so that's kind of where I would go with it. If you have natural shade, then what I would advise you to do is look for a place for your grow beds that will get sun in the morning until midday and then move into shade. That's, that's better than partial shade, in my opinion. You get hit full sun until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, So if you have like a house or a building and you have that east-facing side, that is just glorious. And if you have that, plus you have, let's say, where you can come way back against it and that stays very shaded. Let's say you get some trees on a building. So if you put the, the water tank way back or the water tanks, depending on what you're doing, almost against the wall, But then we move the grow beds out away from the building to where they get all that sun, but the, the tank stays cool throughout the day. Then you're really doing something right. And then we can always remove, like we could also have the, the tank somewhere that we have like 60% or 80% shade cloth over the tank and our 30% over the grow beds or maybe none at all. I mean, you can try. You could always add that shade cloth, Right. And if you're in that eastern sun, then you don't have to worry about it, usually. But then if we have those trees or that shade cloth, you know, the shade cloth goes away in the winter or the trees drop their leaves, then we let the sun in when it gets cooler. And think about your winter. Think about your winter. Uh, my thing has been to use fish that can handle the cold, stock tank heaters to keep the tank from completely freezing up and have recirculation going on, and the grow beds... We just shut them off and drain them in the, the, the times of the year where it freezes. It's just the easiest thing to do. And really, I, I love getting some ebb and flow into any every system. I want some ebb and flow in every system, somewhere in the system. It's just so good for the health, and it causes growth rates. You can't get any, way out, any other way. But the most productive beds, from a standpoint of being able to do anything you want with them and, and, and getting through kind of the tough times of the seasons, are the wicking beds. 
because you're growing in soil and you can fertilize and you can do so much more and you got natural pH buffer and all that other stuff. And when you drain them the, the, in the times of year where it's going to freeze, they still are pretty resilient during that time of year because you don't have a lot of evaporation problems. And the things that you're talking about growing, like carrots and onions, those do fantastic in wicking beds. Tomatoes do very good in ebb and flow beds. Peppers do okay. Peppers do fantastic in wicking beds, Adam. So that's that's the direction I'd point you in with all of those things. Next up, we have Jason. So our only Jason today, we have one Jason, uh, instead of multiple Adams and Mikes. Um, Jack, could you please review or go in depth the employee handbook your son had growing up to earn money doing chores and his allowance? I remember a past episode, but can't seem to find it right now. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Jason, I, I have been asked about this probably more than any other single individual thing I've ever talked about on the show. And I wish I could recreate it, but again, I wrote this thing over 20 years ago. My son is 28 years old now, and I wrote it when he's, he's 29 years old, and I wrote it when he was eight. So 21 years ago, I wrote this thing. But I, I can tell you the basics of it, and I think that even if I could recreate it, you, you still need to do this yourself, guys. But here's what we did, or what I should say I did. I sat down and I said, the first thing I'm going to do is figure out a reasonable list of things for this kid to do in our household every week. And I made a list of jobs. Take out the trash, you know, etc. And I came up with that list. And then I tried to allocate it. So it was kind of something every day. You know, and maybe there's like an, a recurring thing. Like when the garbage is empty, the garbage is full, you take it out. And that's like an extra thing that we could check off at the end of the week. And I made that list. And then I, I made, basically on a computer, I made a page that had the chore list on it. And then I had a little thing that had a sign-off that it was done by me or by Dorothy. And then I could just print out 20 of them, 50 of, 50 of them make a year, right? Give, give them two weeks off. <laughs> I, I really did. I gave him two weeks vacation a year. He could take it whenever he wanted. He just had to put it in advance for it, right? And uh, so then th that just three-hole punch, boom, into a, a notebook. And now he's got that for his sign-off. And even if he did the job, if he didn't come and get us to sign off, it was not counted as being done. That was kind of the heart of it. Now, if I was busy and said, I'll do it later, then it was my fault. But if he didn't come to one of us and ask, he was as responsible for that as doing the job itself. Then I decided we would pay him his age for his allowance. We might go up or down in the future, but we had enough money. There was no problem to pay the kid eight bucks a week. And when he turned nine, he'd get a raise of nine dollars a week. Ten, ten dollars a week. Just like that. Unless we came up with other things to do in the future that let him earn more money. And then all I did was take all those jobs and say, well, this job pays 75 cents. This job pays $1.50. Just made sure that added up to his weekly allowance. And this is where it got interesting. So let's say that his job for today was to do the dishes. Tuesday, do the dishes after dinner. Tuesday comes, dishes don't get done. No one would say, Matthew, you had better go do those dishes. Uh-uh, it's your job. So what would happen is, Tuesday night, I look in the sink, sink's full of dishes. Kid didn't done the dishes, he's off screwing off, he's upstairs, he's whatever. I know he's not coming back, he's headed to bed, whatever. Okay, I would do the dishes. Well, if that job paid a dollar, he owes me a dollar. The job had to be done. Now, 
I, if you think about the way this is, it's going to sound unfair. But when a kid says you're not being fair, unless you're really not, it means you're probably parenting correctly. It wasn't as simple as, so he was supposed to get $8. The one job this week was to do the dishes he didn't do. So now that was a dollar to do that job. So he gets $7. No, he gets 6 for the week. Why? Well, he didn't get the dollar for doing the dishes. I had to do his job for him, so he has to pay me. So it cost him twice what the job paid to not do the job. And, and that was like magic. Because that made it expensive to not do the job. And by the way, let's say that you're making $8 a week, and you let a week go by and you didn't do any of your jobs. You owe me $8. And you don't have $8 coming in. You have to go into your other money and take $8 out of it and pay me. Oh, by the way, when I did have to dock him, let's say he only made six bucks this week, he was supposed to make eight. I still paid him the full eight dollars. And I made him go get me two dollars from his savings and give it back to me instead of only getting six dollars because it made it more real. You think this is tough? You know what? That's why there's kids out eating Tide Pods in their late 20s and my kid has a house. I'm just saying, okay? It works. And then I did some other things, and I can't remember all of them, but I will tell you I did this. He could put as much money as he wanted into a savings account. This savings account initially was a jar that said Matthew's money. Okay? And I kept the jar because I was the bank, and you could trust me. So if he brought me $5 to put in the jar... Then I put $10 in the jar, employer match 401k plan. And I had a cap on it. I don't remember what it was. It was a certain amount per month you could do. And he could put money in there anytime he wanted. But if he took money out, he lost the match. So he needs an extra five bucks. You want five bucks out of the jar? I take $10 out of the jar. I put $5 in my pocket and $5 in his hand. You get this jar. At the end of the year. And then you're expected to put it in a real bank. But whatever's in this jar is yours. But if you take $5 out, you just spent 10 That was one of the things that I did. And I, I came up with all these different ways. And it, what it ended up being is, yes, he was being paid $8 a week. But he ended up where he could have made about 16 if he did everything right. He had a bonus structure. Do all your stuff for a month. Don't miss anything anything. Do it all for a month and you got like four bucks bonus was another example. So that was like a dollar a week right there that you got added on. And if you did, if you got your four dollar bonus and you decided to use it in your savings account, we did a two dollar match on it. So if you gave me that four dollars, right, then I put twelve dollars in the jar. Now there's a loophole there, isn't there? If he comes to me and takes out six bucks, how much do I take out? Six bucks. See, he, he, that's a loophole. But you had to get everything right and then take all the extra money and put it all in the jar. And I just wrote everything down because believe it or not, when you're, when you actually write everything down and you get kids to read it, then they understand it more than you think they do. And they start working that system. And I was doing it as much to give him a sense of responsibility as to teach him how to work a system. It is very valuable to be able to work a system. There's, there's, there's an old saying 
Rules are made for raping. Right? And I know there's some connotations of the word rape that are very negative, and I don't mean it that way. I mean that rules are made for raping. We rape the rules, which means we push the rule to the edge, but we don't break it because then we lose. How much can we do with what we have? And, and I would suggest that you know you come up with a budget and realize your kid is never going to hit 100%. Maybe once or twice, but I mean, not like you don't have to have. Like if you think it's a bit high, to when you, if they get everything perfectly, unless you got that kid that's a straight A student all the time and always is procedural, you're, they're probably not going to maximize the plan, at least not at first. Uh, so you can budget a little higher because that gives us something to shoot for. But just you know, put it together, and I, I'll tell you. But the the core, the core was if you don't do your job, and I have to do it for you, you pay me. That was the and that was freaking magic, because the first time it happened, it was real. The first time he'd gotten used to getting that eight dollar paycheck, and he ended up like two bucks. And by the way, he got eight, and he had to go to his other his little little pocket place where he kept all his money and pull six bucks out and feel it leave his hand. Then hey man, we gotta we got we we figured something out here now, haven't we? This cost us money. And that's the real world. All this shit about school being... That's not the real world. What I did for that boy, that's the real world. That's the real dadgone world. That's how life is. I look outside. Something's broken. I don't want to fix it, but it needs to be fixed. I'm going to call a guy. I'm going to have to pay him to do it. If it's a business... See, this is where it was very business-like. If it's a business and there's a task in the business that I would do and bill my time for. And I go do it, I get paid. If I don't do it and get one of my employees to do it for me, then I don't get to bill my time against it, I don't get paid, and I have to pay to have it done. Now, hopefully I'm running that business to where I can bill enough on that employee to be profitable or I'm running my business wrong, but it's the same dynamic. And it's getting young people to have these thoughts these concepts in their head that enables them to then have a philosophy in life of this is how I win with money. Because winning with money is 90% how you think about money and only 10% how much money you make. Because I can show you people that make a ton of money that have almost nothing to show for it. And I can show you people that don't make much money but they have a good retirement going. You know, and they have, they don't have a lot of debt. I can show you a guy making 50 grand a year that looks better in every measurable way, let's say after 10 years of doing it, than a guy that makes 150 grand a year after the same 10 years of, of not thinking properly with money and being too loose with it and spending it and not having anything to show for it. In fact, many times that guy that makes 150 grand a year is deep in debt. It's worse than it looks. But even the way it looks, you see the guy that's doing it right with the right mentality, he just looks better. Even the average person can look at him and go, he's better. Maybe his house isn't as big, but you can tell he's got his shit together. And that's about managing money and understanding the value of your time. And that's what I tried to teach my son. I'm not going to say it worked 100%, but I'm going to tell you, I think it's done a lot for him in his life. And maybe someday I will try to recreate it and build some kind of a book around it or something. But I just think it's something that, that every parent should custom tailor to their own family because 
you know, were my numbers as far as the amount of money you're spending too big or too little? It all depends. If you don't have the money, then you have to do it a lower number. But what you mean? We got to a point where we ended up just saying like, you're going to do this shit, and this is this is it, right? Um, but I another way this could go is you can give a child a lot more money if they're paying for things that otherwise you would you were going to pay for anyway. I know people that have taken this advice from me and fleshed it out, and by the time the kid's 14 years old, he's paying the electric bill. Now, so he's getting a big allowance, but you know most of it's going to pay the electric bill. But that electric bill goes up and down based on how well the power is managed in the house. All of a sudden, that kid becomes a Voltar, evil overlord of the electricity. There's a lot of ways to structure this. So if you're spending the money anyway, and you can transfer the responsibility to the child and move the money through the child, then they get the experience of handling money. And my other overriding viewpoint, and I had this conversation with my son many times, and it's kind of in the same vein but not about money, is, and I told him this over and over again, my job is that every year I'm supposed to have less rules for you. I'm supposed to have less restrictions for you. You're supposed to have more freedom. Because by the time you're 18, the law says you're an adult and you have complete freedom. And if I have to have rules for you when you're 18, I've done something wrong. So every every day, honestly, you should be a little bit more free than you were the day before and a little bit more in charge of your own life. And if you're going to do that, that's where it comes back in. You have to understand how to manage money. So hopefully that's helpful. Anyway, with that, let me uh, remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast without spending any money you probably weren't going to spend anyway is do your shopping online at tspaz.com. I do lots of recommendations and things like that, but pretty much you can go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online, do your shopping there, and it'll help us out. Uh, the product I have for review for you today, I mentioned my TP-Link uh, uh, wireless router um, in, in commentary today. And that's at least partially because the product that I have really goes well with it. It's also TP-Link, and it's a Wi-Fi range extender, the AC750. Um, this works great with the Archer 2 wireless router, which I love. I, I think the Archer 2 wireless router, the best way I've ever heard it put, uh, very few times I agree with the New York Times, but the best router for the most people. This extender works great with that, but it doesn't matter what you have for a wireless router. It's, it's, it's vendor agnostic. It doesn't care. And this is what I like about this as a range extender. Most range extenders, the way they work is they create another network. So let's say that like my net, I have a network called Ant Hill, right? And let's say I wanted another network and I might call it Ant Hill B. Well, my main router is Ant Hill and then my extender is connected to my router and it creates network anthill B. So then if you're outside I want to connect to anthill B instead of anthill. And they usually require some level of software and some level of configuration that's it can be complex. This one you plug it in and you'll see it as a as a device that you can connect to from a computer. You connect to it and it gives you simple instructions and then you say Basically, connect to Anthill. And you tell it what network to connect to, Anthill, password, password, boom. It connects to Anthill. It now is Anthill. It is an extension. What you actually are looking for an extender, an extension. So if I'm inside and my phone is on the Anthill network, 
and I walk out the door and close the door, and that signal is stronger, and the phone is trying to pick between the two, it doesn't matter which one it picks. It's the same, and I don't have drops, and I don't have problems. And it doesn't get confused. Which means if I take another one and do the same thing to it and put it further out, as long as it can see the last one, it can see the See, it's, it's just freaking genius. And a lot of times people are, you know, that are not technical, they, they, they say, this is hard. This is I am telling you, if you can work a computer enough to want an Internet connection, you can work this extender. It's fantastic. It just works. I have one. I have four different networks here, and it has all four networks mirrored on it outside. And the main reason I got it was just so I could have better signal outside. Like if I want to listen to Pandora at the pool, I don't have to use my cellular connection or what have you. But the other thing is for workshops. I have this big, giant metal building. Everybody's inside during the workshops. It's like a reflector of signal. So what I do during the workshops now, I finally snapped this. I ran an extension cord uh, to the doorway. We leave the door open in, in the area between the house and the garage. We leave that, that one little door open and just plug it in right up in at the doorway. So you're walking under it like it's mistletoe at Christmas when you go in the garage. And that way it's just banging signal through the entire garage. So that, until there's like 80 people trying to use my freaking cable modem connection at the same time, it works pretty daggone well. Anyway, if you want to extend your wireless network, I don't know a better product for it. That's what I try to bring you, the stuff I actually use that actually works, that actually will do what you need it to do. The TP-Link AC750 dual-band Wi-Fi range extender is one of those. And remember, you can always uh, help support the Survival Podcast simply by shopping at tspass.com. Next up today, our song of the day is by a band called Blue Oyster Cult, and it's called Don't Fear the Reaper. And I'll have to admit, this is not one of my favorite songs. I've never really liked this song, and I should, because the message is actually very, very positive. Uh, the guy that wrote the song for the band was pretty horrified at some point in his life when he found out that people thought, like, Don't Fear the Reaper was being, you know, labeled a suicide song or an advocacy for suicide. You know, don't fear the reaper. Let's go ahead and die, you know, whatever. Because the song was really about living. By not being afraid of death is an eventuality. You can actually live life to the fullest. And, uh, I mean, that is so consistent with my messaging. And I don't know if it's the sound. I, it's a very, to me, it's a very repetitive song. But I know it's, it's a huge hit, and a lot of people really love it. And it's part of why I have John Adam doing my musical selection to me to create diversity in the music. Otherwise, every other day we'd be listening to Jimmy Buffett, right? Uh, so uh, it's, it's, I don't hate it. It's just not my thing. And I think that's the important thing about music. Like Music is one of the most personally subjective things out there. So anyway, great message. Hope you enjoy the song. And if you didn't know that's what it was about, well, now you do. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.